Luke 24, verse 13 through 35. That's what I'm going to read today. Luke 24, verse 13 through 35. You'll know this story as the road to Emmaus. It begins like this. That very day, the two of them, meaning two followers of Jesus, were going to a village named Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened, meaning the crucifixion, the empty tomb. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And Jesus said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted... Jesus acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened. And they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while we talked, while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose the same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. This is the word of the Lord. Antoine de Saint-Exubery. You won't know that name. I don't expect you to know that name. But you will know the book that he is incredibly famous for writing. 
The Little Prince. We know that book. Famous, famous children's book, The Little Prince. Antoine wrote this about friendship. He said, no man can draw a free breath who does not share with other men, men and women, a common and disinterested ideal. Now, old language, had to look this up. He does not mean disinterested as in bored. He means not influenced by the considerations of personal advantage. So let me rephrase this. No man can draw a free breath who does not share with other men a common ideal which is not for the sake of his personal advantage. We aren't free who are selfish. It is a free breath when we believe in something not for the sake of ourself at all, but because it is right. Life has taught us that love does not consist in gazing at each other, Exuberi writes, but in looking outward together in the same direction. Lewis had a very similar quote. The true friendship is staring outward together and looking in the same direction. Well, what does this wise children's author mean by this when he talks about friendship? He's using the language of companionship, but he's also pairing it with the language of selflessness. Companionship and selflessness. And in his terms, friendship is a bond created when we share with another human a common ideal, a pursuit, a longing that is not dependent on the performance of the other person. That is not dependent on whether they like us or not because we do it. It's not dependent on what we gain or what merit we accrue for what we do it. That is not why we admire it. We admire it because we know it is the truth. And we're happy to be with anyone we can share companionship with simply because we admire the same ideal together. And we will follow it and we will live with this companionship and selflessness and it will create a joy that is transcendent. And this is the bedrock of our community in the church. So this, this for the next three weeks, I know some of us are here, some of us are gone, it's summer. We're going to do a series, just a short series. And then we're going to move into like an entire year in the book of Acts. Okay, so we're going to do a short series for the next three weeks. This is called The Basics. The Basics. And in this, we're going to approach the Bible, prayer, and fellowship from Exuberi's paradigm that we are in companionship together, you guys. We're in companionship with a shared and common ideal. And so my job up front here is not to approach and guilt you or shame you or coerce you. We are not here to cave or appeal to peer pressure or expectations, we are here from a Christian conviction. And that conviction is that we are all Jesus followers. And in that, there's incredible beauty and transformation that is possible, just like the two close friends who shared companionship on the road to Emmaus. Some of us know this story well. I actually didn't know this story very well. It wasn't a story that I remember preached to me. It wasn't a story told to me in children's classrooms. And so when I heard this story, I felt like I heard it for the first time just a couple years ago. And I thought about these two 
disciples of Jesus. These are not part of the 12. These are in the outer ring of the disciples. We don't know Cleopas, really, in much of the biblical story. Walking probably with his wife or maybe with a very dear friend, and they're on a journey back home. They're intimate friends at the very minimum. And what are they doing at the beginning of this? What are they doing? When Jesus, who they don't recognize, walks up to them, there is a collective sigh. Just a... depending on how we feel about everything that's happening right now, particularly COVID, but you could think about the smoke and the fires and the heat waves. I think we can relate to walking together with a shared ideal that creates a collective sigh. We come together and we bemoan the way Portland used to be when summers weren't so hot and the way the Northwest used to look and how things used to be in the city and how Crime didn't used to be as prevalent as it might be in our neighborhood. All of these things we bemoan together and we share our sadness as a common ideal that is a bond, actually, of our companionship. Many of us bond together in this way. In fact, it's rampant across our country and across the world. It is just a way that humans want to bond. We want to pick something and share that vision together and unite behind it. But this story is incredible in the correction and vision it provides on what ideal is truly worth sharing. These two disciples are are together after a total crisis. Everything as they could imagine it has fallen apart. They all voted for this guy and this guy won. And they are sitting here going, what has become of the world? We don't even know up from down. And it says that they shared together a sadness. And it was in their sharing of the sadness together, they were comforted. But that comfort is temporary because the ideal that they shared and the dream that they shared was a temporary dream. The thing that they most wanted out of the world, they found they had lost as they knew it. And they were lost because of it. We are like the two travelers on the road. We're like it all the time. We walk together in the same way. In fact, we have it so much better than these two disciples. Cleopas and his close friend had placed their hope in the Jewish Messiah, understanding that the Messiah, as they they understood it, would defeat those that persecuted them and had them under the control. These were a persecuted people living colonized by Rome. A Roman soldier could walk up and say, shine my shoes, carry my cloak, we know biblically, and you would have to do it. There's no question far greater persecution than we could possibly imagine in this room, most of us, especially in this time. And they had finally found the Messiah who would deliver them from persecution, who would give them a kind of social and civic freedom. Jesus was going to be their Messiah and he would bring them personal advantage in the world. 
He would save them. He would give them standing and dignity and the respect they finally desired and the Jewish people had been prophesied to have as the people of God. They were Israel for goodness sake. And then Jesus was taken to a sham trial, lifted on a cross and skewered and the hope was lost and their Messiah was killed. He was murdered. He was lynched illegally. And that was that. So now what? Their ideal seemed to be revealed as a lie, but was it? Was their ideal revealed as a lie? As I was pondering this text, it occurred to me that being a Christian is not about seeking personal advantage, meaning, listen to me here, meaning it's not about seeking our salvation. We don't become Christians in order to get into heaven. We don't become Christians in order to be more right. We don't come Christians to have the way and say, now we can do whatever we want. There is a form of Christianity that says, I am saved, you can't touch me, I can do whatever I want. Jesus loves me. But what Exuberi says so well in his quote about friendship is he says, look, you're trapped. You're trapped when you view your ideal as something that is going to get to you somewhere. You, you're consumed with yourself. These two disciples on the road together are actually consumed in a, in a kind of self-pity. Now, I'm not coming down really hard on them, but the power of self-pity is real, you guys. Self-pity is not talked about enough in our culture. And self-pity is generally very socially acceptable. But these two disciples are literally walking next to Jesus in sadness because their ideal was revealed to be a lie. Who they saw Jesus as they thought he was that wasn't Jesus. We say that again. The Jesus that the disciples on the road to Emmaus saw was not Jesus. The Jesus that they thought he was, that wasn't him. The Jesus they had followed, the Jesus that had fed 5,000 people, the Jesus that had done miracles and healings, the Jesus that they thought they knew, they couldn't recognize him because that Jesus wouldn't suffer to come into glory. That Jesus would claim and name his glory and take the throne and the crown. And so I, I want us to put ourselves in, in those shoes for a second. Every single person in this room has a vision of Jesus that is clouded by temporary ideals and not the true ideal, not the truth of Jesus. And if he were to walk up to us as a fellow traveler, we would look for signs and signals as to whether or not he was like us in our Jesus following. And if he was not, we would not recognize him as Jesus. Or we would have a presupposition of what a Christian is. And if he doesn't look to be like that, we would say, impossible. I don't even, I can't even recognize you. That's what this story is trying to communicate with the way it's told. We can try and visualize it and say, did Jesus have a different face? But that's not the point. The point is that the Jesus, that the disciples who had lived with him and had seen and been in the crowds of was not the real Jesus. That Jesus in front of them physically was real, but their interpretation of who he was was a lie. What they thought Jesus was, was a lie, and it's going to take dying to selfish ambition, we'll see, 
to become free. It is going to take humility and the willingness to be corrected to become free. We need to be like the travelers on the road. What do they say? They, they tell him. He says, what things? He challenges them. Jesus does this all the time with questions. He comes up to him and he says, who do you say I am? Tell me what you believe the scriptures say. And he says, what things would make Jesus dead? Tell me the things that would make Jesus no longer somebody that has any power in your life, no longer a reason for hope for you. And they go, they go on and on. <laughs> they said, they look at him and they say, have you not, are like you the only person that doesn't know this? Ridiculous. Okay, how could you possibly not know this? There's not even a question in their minds that they are wrong. So I, t I said today that we were going to talk about the basics and that we we're going to look at reading our Bible. And some of you are wondering when I'm going to start talking about reading our Bibles. And I, I am talking about reading our Bibles. Listen to what Jesus tells these followers in Luke 24, 25. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory and beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, the scriptures as the Jewish people knew it, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Jesus became Bible teacher. The disciples could not see Jesus, so Jesus had to teach them again, how to read their Bibles. We are never too old for the basics. We are never too old to learn how to read our Bibles. Jesus literally calls them fools. He says, you're, you're an idiot. You've got it wrong. I need to chastise you for you to understand that you couldn't recognize Jesus if he walked with you and talked with you. You couldn't see him in a fellow traveler, a conversation partner, a citizen. You've got the markers wrong. You've got the identity of Jesus wrong. And so because you've read your Bibles so long, so wrong for so long, you miss me. Jesus is not saying read your Bibles. He's coming up to Jewish disciples for as far as we can assume, because it was just way more the rule in this time, that if you were a Jew, you went to synagogue, you learned your Bible. There's nothing to tell us that Cleopas and his dear friend did not know the Bible. No, they knew the law and the prophets. And Jesus pointed out to them Jesus in the Bible. That's what's happening here. And so that Jesus teaches us, this is a really important piece for us to learn as people who maybe struggle with Bible reading, that the most basic rule of Bible reading is we, we believe it because Jesus taught it to us, which is to read the Bible so that we can see Jesus more clearly. That's what this text is telling us. Read it so that you can see me. Don't feel like reading your Bible but you want to see and know and hear from me, read it so that you can see me. And if we match that up with the paradigm I laid out of companionship 
and selflessness. We could say that to experience true freedom, to become true companions together on the road, not just linked by a, an opportunistic time of mutual personal advantage, but actually transformational companionship in which we will grow through conflict. It is that we will be walking together with the shared ideal of Jesus. That's the most basic thing we do as a church. That is what the church is for. The church is not for getting along and being nice all the time. The church is for learning who Jesus is and following him. That's what the church is for. If we cannot do that, we are no use. We are salt that has lost its flavor. So, why do we not read our Bibles? What is the challenge with us? Why is it so difficult to open it up? There's a hundred reasons on any given day while we'll lay down in bed at night and go, shoot. Or we'll read it and get distracted. Or we'll read it and we're just like, it ain't doing it for me today. Like, what's the point? What is our problem with the Bible? And I think biblically we can start here. We can address every little symptom, but biblically we can start here. Our problem with the Bible is precisely that we believe it has authority over us. The Jewish people would have believed that, and the early Christians believed that. We as Christians profess to believe. We are like, who else in society, really, believes some written code has authority over them? How do we treat legal codes? How do we treat laws? In front of me today, just as I was driving up to a red turn signal, there was no one coming this way, the car just looked around, boom. You know, that the, the law's there so that I don't hit a car, so I'm not gonna hit a car, so I'm just gonna go. I don't need to obey the law. I know the law. I know why the law's there, so I don't need to obey the law. Genesis 3 tells us that we are prone to do this all the time. When Adam and Eve took of the tree of what? What was the tree called? The tree, the knowledge of good and evil. What do we think that means? What do we think the tree of the knowledge of good and evil means? I grew up thinking that it meant they didn't understand what evil was, and now they could understand what evil was. They were in complete innocence, no sense that evil was even a thing, and now they can understand good and evil. That's part of it. But look at the whole story. What do they do in order to understand evil? They disobey. They say, nobody's coming this way. I'm going to hang a left. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is much more. This is a much more powerful understanding for you. We need to get beyond the fact that it's just something we can write off. They were trying, they were saying, I can decide for myself what is good and what is evil. So in Adam and Eve, the beginning, the origin story of mankind, our inherited original sin, when they, under, when they did that, when they took that bite, when they made that decision in their heart, they were saying, I know what good and evil is. Don't tell me. I'm just as smart as you, God. You made me in your image. I got this. And in that moment, deep in our souls is embedded a brokenness in which we believe that with our own reason and our own understanding of the Bible, of the laws, 
of Jesus that we get to decide what we obey and don't obey. We get to decide what's right and wrong. And that, I believe, is actually the core original sin and the reason why we don't read our Bibles. Now, it shows up in lots of different ways, and I'm not here to tell you you should read your Bible. Again, I'm coming alongside of you as a companion, and we are going to admire the Bible together. How well does the Bible know us that in the first three chapters, it lays out the most poignant, profound understanding of human nature? Here's a few reasons we might not read our Bible. See if you identify with any of these. My Bible feels less alive in certain seasons. It feels like work. We rationalize not reading it by saying, I know it already. What did these two, walk, two companions walking to Emmaus say? Haven't you heard? We know it already, Jesus. We know it already, dude. We don't need to go into it again. He's dead. This thing doesn't work. This Jesus thing is dead on arrival. It does not work. Haven't you heard the word on the street? Haven't you looked around? Haven't you seen the state of the church? Haven't you seen pastors falling? Haven't you seen the mess that evangelicalism is right now? It doesn't work. We need a new way. And so we group together in sadness and we create new tribes with new senses of what right and wrong is. And we gather up our weapons and our tools and our rhetorics and we go. Because it's built into us. We give up on the true ideal. And we take on a temporary ideal that is to our personal advantage. It won't give us the good life. And it's a sign that we've lost faith. Adam and Eve lost faith in the goodness of God when they couldn't have something. When they had to obey him, they lost faith in him because their companionship was for their own personal advantage. Even their companionship with God who they walked with in the cool of the day. And what does Jesus say the cure to their sadness is? What do we see that the cure to their sadness is? Don't read your Bible less. Read it more when problems arise. Don't read your Bible less. Go deeper. The Bible knows you. The Bible knows everyone. The Bible has the truth. We believe it is the word of God. So let's admire the Bible for a second. Let's just take a step back. Cool down, John. Let's admire the Bible for a second. The Bible is, sits number one on the most influential books ever written. I mean, it has influenced more stories. It has influenced more culture. It is the best-selling book of all time. Five billion copies, they say. The Bible matters, period. Whether you believe in Jesus or not, the Bible definitely matters. In a book that I remember sitting in my dad's study when I was growing up called How the Irish Saved Civilization, the author Thomas Cahill writes about how monks in Northern Ireland preserved civilization precisely because of their belief in the Bible. I'm going to read a short summary 
that one reader wrote. They said, in the depths of the Dark Ages, 400 years after the fall of Rome, the only place in the world where the art of illuminated scripture was still being practiced was in the monasteries of Ireland, a place so remote and primitive that they were barely aware that they were no longer part of the Roman Empire. The clergy of Europe had become, this is the clergy of Europe, not Ireland. The clergy of Europe had become as illiterate as the peasants, but they memorized and recited the Bible from memory. Errors compounded themselves as recondite knowledge was passed orally from generation to generation among priests and the Irish monks led by a man named Patrick were the last literate Northern Europeans. They began traveling through Europe and teaching the clergy how to read. Absent their efforts, civilization as we know it would have passed out of existence. There would have been no Charlemagne to consolidate Europe, no Elizabeth to sponsor the Reformed Church in the Arts, no Queen Isabella to finance the discovery of the Americas because they would not have existed. That, because all that would have existed would have been barely above the level of a caveman. That's what they wrote. In words we can all understand, we might not have the internet if it weren't for the Bible. Think about it. The Bible matters. It just matters, period. It's important. What makes this book so important? Aren't we curious? Aren't even our neighbors curious? Who on earth lives by the book? Pastors have often been called men of the cloth or people of the book, right? Who lives by a book anymore? Even our modern examples, I went to art school, the modern interpretive style of art and postmodernism is you decide what it means to you. The artist did something, but their meaning is secondary. What matters is how it impacts you. The Bible doesn't function in that way. Romans 10, 17 says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. We literally cannot know Jesus without the words on the pages of our Bible. Whether you heard it from a friend, whether you hear and feel Jesus from songs or in prayer, the point is if the Bible isn't read in a way that we are looking to be in companionship with Jesus, we are no longer Christians. If we give up, that pursuit, if we give up that desire to be together in that ideal. So lack of energy, doubt, length, discipline, whatever the things are, the primary root is that Genesis 3 desire to want to do it our own way. And it will impact the way we interpret the Bible. And this is one of the challenging things about being a church. We interpret it differently. So I'm not asking that we all agree with everything. I'm saying, can we try and see Jesus together? Can we listen to his words and how he influenced the Old Testament? Maybe we're Old Testament people and we really jive with the Old Testament. But are we letting Jesus and his words be the living word that the Old Testament was written to get to? The ending of the Old Testament is Jesus. There's no ending to the story of the Old Testament without Jesus. The Old Testament is bankrupt without Jesus. That's why we're Christians and not Jews. It is the, prime, the Bible is the primary way we understand Jesus. It's also the primary way we understand God. It's how we understand the character of God, whose kingdom we live in and whose kingdom, his divine country continues into eternity. And the Bible has influenced 
just everyone you could imagine. John Steinbeck, Dostoevsky, like all the literature, Hollywood movies, everything is tied to this text. But the only way to find out about God truly, his true nature, is to understand that God's kingdom is Jesus' kingdom. When Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven, when Jesus preaches the Beatitudes, he's talking about what God meant in the Old Testament. If we don't believe that, we're not Christians. It's that simple. If we can't get behind the teachings of Jesus because we're too in love with the teachings of Exodus, we're not Christians. Those two things synthesize, they're together. They are not even, they're two sides of one coin you could say, but they just are. They're just it. You don't understand it right if you think that one is balancing the other, they are the other. There's no difference between them. And that's really difficult for our heads. Okay, where does this take us? The, the, the turning point of the story the turning point of the story of the road to Emmaus is that Moses shows them, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, and he interprets to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That's the turning point. Now watch what happens. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going further. It sounds a little bit like a test. Sounds a little bit like an invitation, let's put it that way. What will you do? Now that I have steered you back to your Bible so that you can see me, they, it, the text tells us later, so that your hearts would begin to burn with conviction, maybe with a little shame and guilt. Jesus isn't beyond some of that, even though that shouldn't be our MO. Jesus says things that make you feel ashamed. Foolish, he calls them and their hearts burned within them in a mess probably of conviction and just discovery, a wild, alive, animal sense that this was something new and really important. And he feigns going further because he wants to see what they will do. And what do they do? This is glorious. Verse 29, they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is toward the evening and the day is now far spent. So he went to stay with them when he was at the table with them. He took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Can we admire and desire that kind of Bible reading that would help us discover Jesus to eat of his body and his blood with him? This is a clearly a dinner that's harking to the Eucharist. This is clearly a dinner harking to the Last Supper. This is a symbolic literary move saying you need to be in a place of confession, humility. This is not about losing or winning. This is about spending time with Jesus, whether it feels like you're losing or it feels like you're winning, it feels like things are falling apart or not. Jesus holds it all together. Hang out with Jesus. So this tells us, now I'm gonna go through these quickly. My time's probably running short. I have five very quick listed points. 
that I wanna talk about about how we read our Bibles. What does this text show us about how to read our Bibles? Well, the first one is one that is mirrored in Old Testament scripture, Psalm 1-2. Psalm 1-1-2. One, one, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, those who sling mud. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The first thing we find about reading our Bible is that they invite Jesus in for the night. They have dinner. They hang out. They meditate with the living word of God, who is both revealing the scriptures and living the scriptures before them in the most alive Bible reading experience ever recorded. And in here we say, well, Jesus doesn't do that with me. I can't see him. I can't hear him. And I'm here to tell you the Bible is that living document that we have the privilege to call scripture. But it's complicated, isn't it? We go, John, okay, John got me to read my Bible. I'm gonna go sit down. Yeah, I'm super jazzed about this. I have no idea what Matthew 1's genealogy is about. No clue. Where's Jesus? Lost, done. At lunchtime, kids are, like, it's gone. That's how quick it goes. Remember, spend time. But we also need to understand a little bit about the nature of the Bible. First of all, the Bible is living precisely because it's dually authored. You are reading the words of people. You are reading the thoughts of people. You are reading about the lives of people. People a little bit, not a lot, but a little bit like you and me. We have the same basic nature that we see in Genesis one through three. Very different lifestyles, very different priorities. But the Bible is duly authored and it gets it right because it is written by us and God at the same time. It is written by us and God at the same time. Second Peter 1, 21, does a very succinct job of communicating this. I'll read 20 and 21. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture comes from one's own interpretation. Nothing in here is just human ideas. For no such prophecy was ever brought forth by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You can fight this with me, but I'm gonna stand pretty strong. The biblical text is not here for mind control. It wasn't like they went into a trance and just wrote everything down. The biblical text was not golden tablets fallen from the sky that we discovered the words of God printed in ancient Hebrew and Greek. By the way, over like many multiple times and editions. No, that's not what it is. This is a, a living document that's always been alive that people were adding to and building as they discovered and wrote things that they were convicted by the spirit, which is for artists in the room is a little bit like the muse, but it's the muse of truth. When the muse comes, you're creative, you're inspired, you're, 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 you're in it, you're flowing. These biblical writers were flowing from the spirit of truth, writing letters, writing genealogies, writing poetry, writing songs, writing histories, writing royal, Chronicles is like a royal dictate of history. And they were even adopting non-religious things into the Bible. Some of the Proverbs aren't written by Solomon. They're not written by anybody who followed Yahweh. They're literally taken from kings of Babylon as wise sayings that fit with the spirit of truth. The Bible is a library of truth that was built over a thousand years. The best analogy I can make to this for the Bible is it's a little bit like a documentary. 
You know that I used to make documentaries. What's in a documentary? When you watch a compelling documentary, what is in it? There's live testimony. There's autobiography. There's archival footage from museums. There's things that actually don't factually relate to the story at all, but they give you an understanding of the truth. Fairy tales, animated. There's all kinds of things in the Bible that match that same style. It's a library. It's like a documentary. And it's put together over a thousand years to communicate something that is totally trustworthy. That's the difference. This is not just a, an, a nice idea somebody had, a beautiful text that feels pretty good. These are all put together and assembled in the spirit of truth. The spirit of God guided. Timothy says that the scripture is God breathed. And then if you actually look at how we got the letters of the New Testament, by the way, the New Testament then is all interpretation of the Old Testament in light of the road to Emmaus and that approach. Because of Christ, now what does this all mean? Read Romans, read Hebrews, read, I'm trying to think of other good ones, uh, Colossians. They are, read Acts. All they are doing is they are taking the biblical stories and retelling them with an interpretation that centers through the door of Christ. Christ says, I am the door. You must go through me, right? We must go through Christ to understand the Bible. And the New Testament is just lots of really, I don't know what the word I'm like, devout, holy. These are incredible apostles. They knew Jesus. They knew it. We believe they knew it. The historic church believed they knew it. And they are saying, I'm going to interpret this. And we have said we can absolutely trust that. But the bottom line is that the story points us to Christ. Now, what do we do with this? Why is it that we also don't read our Bibles? We don't think our Bibles are relevant. They're irrelevant. I would rather read a blog post. I would rather read Facebook. I would rather track Twitter. My Bible is not relevant. It's out of touch, it's archaic language. It's like that prayer I read to start today. There's words in there I don't know because they were written in 1600. So I write it off, not worth it. Just dismiss it, throw it all away. Because I'm becoming more illiterate, I shouldn't read literary work, is what we're saying. And what does Jesus says? He says, go deeper, spend more time. There are people who understand this, who are here to help you with this. You say, I don't know where to start. Start with Jesus. Start in the Gospels. If you don't read your Bible, start with the Gospel. It's just, it gets you on the right page. Start with Jesus. And then go learn Leviticus. And then go learn these things that are really difficult to understand. And if we start with Jesus, instead of living a church that is adopting a Christian culture, perpetuating or mirroring or furthering what we like according to our biases that is in the Christian ecosystem, the music that we hear that we like, the prayers that we heard somebody say that we like, instead of just mimicking and imitating them because they fit our affinities, we are going to make a new thing. We are going to make a new thing because we're going to the source of Jesus, spending time with him, and then out of us is bubbling out a Christian conviction that will manifest itself in our lives. We live the word along with Jesus. Isaiah 43, 19 says, Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall ye, know, shall ye not know it? I will even make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. So what, what does the Road to Emmaus story tell us about making a new thing? Luke 24, 35, what happens? 
They ran, they rose, 30, start at 33. They rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. They found the 11 who were there, gathered together. They said, the Lord is risen. He has appeared to Simon. And they told them. So this is the part that the disciples on the road to Emmaus have. They told the disciples who knew part of the story what happened on the road and how it was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And together, together, we're not alone in this. Together, they build a new thing, which becomes the New Testament. And we as a church, if we can get the basics down, we will begin not to mimic each other, not to mimic movements, whatever kind they are, social, political, religious. No, we will make a new thing that springs out of spending time with Jesus in what? How do we spend time with Jesus? Yes, we go into our Bibles, but what do they do? What do they point out again at the very last point? And he was known to them how? In the breaking of the bread. That's key. That's key. What hope they had. So today we're going to have communion as we have every week. Now, when we have communion every week, the danger is that we get used to it, that it's just mimicking the culture of our church. And we don't actually understand what we're doing, nor have we put our hearts in the posture where we are truly breaking bread with Jesus. I knew that when I started doing it weekly. I still do it weekly. I want everyone to always have that opportunity, but it's up to you to confess when you come and you take of the body of Christ. Not to me, not to anyone else. To stand in humility and say, I am an open book, God. I know that I'm broken. I know you've convicted me to repent of this. I repent of this before I come and take of your body. I'm not going to come and take disingenuously. And I will follow through with my repentance. I will submit to you, Jesus, and your way and confess that you are Christ. I heard a pastor say this week that when we take, when we confess Jesus, whether it's through the Eucharist or on our deathbed, we are admitting that we are both the victim Jesus came to save and the victimizer who is the reason he died. We are the victim he came to save and the victimizer that is the reason that he died. We confess that state of spiritual bankruptcy. We let go. I'm bankrupt. And we then stand together in companionship and hope together because we are freed from personal advantage. We have what, what he calls a disinterested ideal. It doesn't matter what it does to me, I still believe it because it's the truth and it's right. And I know it will bring the good life. So today, as we take communion, I would ask that if you're willing, come up, please, do it in a spirit of confession. Take individually as Megan and Sarah lead us in the final two songs. Let's pray quickly. God, as we take these elements, we know that we are taking your body broken for us and your blood poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. We know that you ask us to do this and proclaim your death and resurrection until the day that you come. God bless this church. Help us to live in a spirit of love. Bring us increasing community. Let us admire the Bible together in Jesus' name. Amen.